4, 4 through 6. We've been going through this series, What is a Healthy Church? As you know, that's not typically how I preach. Typically, we, we are going through a book of the Bible, but um, throughout this series, we're looking at the marks of a healthy church. And, and as I've said before, these really come from a, a book called uh, The Nine Marks uh, of, a, of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. And we're just going through these marks. What What is it that marks a healthy church? How do we know if a church is healthy? And so we're taking that title, What is a Healthy Church? And then we're, we're going through these marks of a healthy church. Today, we're going to talk about the gospel. The gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, reading from the English Standard Version, says, this to us this morning. This is the word of the Lord. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If we want our churches to have sound biblical theology, then it is imperative. It is critical to correctly understand the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel. The gospel is the heart of Christianity. And so it should be at the heart of every single church that proclaims itself to be a church of Jesus Christ. If we think of news today, we understand that news is a big business. Stop and think of all the ways that news is offered to us in America. We find it on websites. We find it on social media and on 24-hour news channels, periodicals that are devoted to the news, and thousands upon thousands of newspapers. Stop and think of all the news that we consume daily. We supposedly can learn about everything in the news. We can learn about presidential elections. We can learn about natural disasters. We can learn about economic issues. We can learn about important trends. We can learn about plant closures. There, there are some people so addicted to the news, we could wonder if they would be able to survive without the news. There are people that it seems that all they want is news, news, news. They have to keep up with the latest news. They have to devour all they can. If it's news, then they have to know it. Sometimes we fear missing out on knowing something. I mean, no one wants to be the last one to know something. So the news becomes this pursuit of relevance in our lives. O.S. Guinness has said, the very pursuit of relevance becomes a prime source of superficiality and burnout. 
hell, it has been said, will be full of newspapers with a fresh edition every 30 seconds so that no one will ever feel caught up. Accuracy is the only attribute of the news that trumps speed and importance. In fact, the last few years, the term fake news has become popular for reasons most of us know. No matter how fake we try to make the news, I am not sure that it can top the embarrassing, unintentional, typographical conflation found in an English newspaper over 100 years ago. One story was about a patent pig-killing and sausage-making machine, and the other was about a local clergyman named Reverend Dr. Mudge who was being presented with a gold-headed cane. And it was a mangled story that was a mess. Let me share a portion. Several of Reverend Dr. Mudge's friends called upon him yesterday, and after a conversation, the unsuspecting pig was seized by the hind leg and slid along a beam until he reached the hot water tank. Thereupon, he came forward and said that there were times when the feelings overpowered one, and for that reason, he would not attempt to do more than thank those around him for the manner in which such a huge animal was cut into fragments was simply astonishing. The doctor concluded his remarks. When the machine seized him, and in less time than it takes to write it, the pig was cut into fragments and worked up into a delicious sausage. The occasion will be long remembered by the doctor's friends as one of the most delightful of their lives. The best pieces can be procured for 10 pence a pound, and we are sure that those who have sat so long under his ministry will rejoice that he has been treated so handsomely. That's a mess. That is real fake news. Now, when you go to church on Sunday... I'm sure that you're not thinking, or that you, maybe you are thinking, I'm not having to deal with the news, but let me be clear. Christianity is all about news. It is the good news. It is the best news the world has ever heard. This news is far more important than any other news. However, the problem is like the story for Reverend Dr. Mudge in the patent pig-killing machine. It's often scrambled and confused. And far too often, this news is not conformed to the truth about who God is. The whole idea that this message of salvation is good news is not some sort of Christian gimmick to try to get people to commit to Jesus. Jesus Christ himself talks about the good news, and he reaches all the way back to the language found in Isaiah to do so. When the New Testament talks about Jesus' message of salvation, it uses the Greek word evangel, which means good news. Well, what is the good news? Let me be clear. This week and next week, we will be dealing with salvation. However, they will be slightly different. Next week, we will be dealing with the moment of salvation known as conversion. And today, we want to look at the actual gospel message. What is the good news that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, what is it that we are to proclaim? A healthy church 
is a church in which every member, young and old, mature and immature, are united around the good news of salvation that's found through Jesus Christ. The church gathers week after week to hear the gospel rehearsed over and over again. A biblical understanding of the gospel should inform every single sermon, every act of baptism, every time we take communion, every song that is sung, every prayer that is heard, and every conversation that takes place should be informed by the good news of Jesus Christ. More than anything else in the life of a church, the mark of a healthy church is to pray and to long and to know the gospel of Jesus Christ more deeply. The hope of the gospel is the hope of knowing the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is the hope of seeing him clearly and knowing him fully. It is the hope of becoming like Christ as we see him as he is. So what is the good news that we speak of? What is the gospel message? Is it a message that God is love? Is it a message that everybody is okay? Or a message that Jesus is my friend? Or is it a message that, that I just need to try harder to live right? What is the good news that we talk about? Well, this morning, let's first see what it is not. It is not. The gospel is not the news that we are okay. For some, they think Christianity is like a therapy session. We try to help everyone feel better about themselves by telling them that they are okay. The pew is the therapy couch, and the pastor asks questions about felt needs of his congregation and he expounds on how you can have a better inner self. The scripture fundamentally rejects any notion that we are okay. That our human condition is fine and that everyone is basically good. They just need to accept who they are and their current condition. We hear that today that you just need to accept who you are. You just need to accept that you're a finite being, and that you are imperfect, but that's okay, because we're all that way. And you have to just look on the bright side of things. Just change your outlook on life, and everything will be okay. That's ridiculous, and it's totally unbiblical. The Bible clearly teaches us that our first parents, Adam and Eve, and us are disobedient to God. We are therefore neither righteous nor are we on good terms with God. In fact, our sin is so serious that we need a whole new life according to Jesus. In John 3, he says this. And according to Paul, we must be created again because we are dead in our transgressions and our sins. The word transgression is just another word for sin. It means that we have crossed a boundary. Our transgression may not seem offensive, but they are deadly for our relationship with God. In fact, James writes, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James 2, 10, 11. 
Paul says that the wages of sin is death. And James 2 provides us with a little more understanding of the seriousness of sin. The point that James is making is that the laws of God are not just some sort of external statues that that were published in heaven by some sort of heavenly congress. But the laws of God reflect the character of God. His laws are an expression of God himself. So to break any of God's law is to live against God. It is to live contrary to God. Let me illustrate it for you in this way. My wife asked me to go to the store and buy some groceries. She says, will you go buy some groceries that I need? And I go. But I get to the Walmart and I deliberately buy a big screen TV. That's not a mistake on my part. I have deliberately failed to get what I should have gotten, and instead I come home with a television. What is the problem with that? Every man needs an awesome television. Right? There's no should be no problem with that. Well, the real problem is not what I bought or did not buy. The problem is that my actions are a reflection of a larger, deeper issue in my relationship with my wife. It is the same with us and God. We can't just say, well, oh well, uh, this week I only broke 12 of God's laws. So that's not too bad. The real issue is what does our blatant disregard for the law of God say about a relationship with God himself? What is going on between us and God? That's the real issue. God is not just some sort of passive creator, but the Bible pictures God as a jealous lover which is to say that God wants every single part of us. If we think that we can disregard him sometimes and set his his ways off to the side so we can do our own thing that suits us in any given moment, it reveals that we have not and do not fully understand the nature of our relationship with God. We can't claim to be believers, yet knowingly and repeatedly and habitually and happily break the law of God. You see, this is the state that we are in. We have crossed the boundary that God has set for our lives. We have contradicted the letter and the spirit of the law of God. We not only feel guilty, but we are guilty before God. We are in conflict with God. We break God's laws over and over and over again because we are dead in our transgressions and our sins. Romans lays out for us the argument concerning our dilemma. In chapter 1, Paul shows that the Gentiles have sinned and that all of the nations have sinned and broken God's law. Just in case his Jewish readers got all puffed up and thought that they were righteous. In chapter 2, he makes it clear that the Jews have also sinned. Paul says that if anyone claims to know right from wrong, they should know well enough to realize that they have sinned. And then in chapter 3, he draws the obvious conclusion. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 3, 9-20. That seems grim. Read this and say, hey, go up to somebody and say, hey, let me share with you some good news and read Romans 3, 9 through 20. That's not good news. Your throat's an open grave and your tongue deceives God. That's, that's not good. But you know what? We must understand where we are if we are ever to understand where we need to be. And when we realize where we are, then where we need to be is certainly good news. Our problems are not that we've messed up in our life. Your problem is not, my problem is not that I've just failed to reach my potential, but that I have sinned. And I haven't sinned primarily against myself, but against God. And I am rightly the object of God's divine wrath and judgment. And that I deserve death and punishment and hell and separation from God. And spiritual alienation from God. That is what I deserve. I deserve for His active punishment to be poured out on me now and forever. That's what I deserve. This is what theologians call total depravity or spiritual death. It is the death which deserves death. Our sins are so tragic because they're committed against a perfect and holy and loving God. We who are created in God's very image commit these sins. You see, true Christianity understands the dark side of our world and of our life and of our nature and of our hearts. And true Christianity also is not just pessimistic or morally neutral that encourages people to accept the truth about our fallen state. The news that we bring is not just that we are all so depraved and there's no hope because that is not good news. We bring this news that says, yes, we are all totally and utterly 
in our sin. Every single one of us is so filthy, a wretch, and filled with sin. Yes, that is terrible news. But God's plans are wonderful. And that's good news. And He knows what He has made every one of us for. And when you come to that realization, that you begin to realize that Christianity is not about having a life free of pain, nor is it about learning to live with the pain of life. The message of Jesus Christ is a message about teaching us to live with a longing that transforms, a faith that is growing, and a sure and certain hope of what's to come. The gospel is not the news that we are all okay. Secondly, the gospel is not the news that God is love. The gospel is not the news that God is love. Often we hear the gospel presented as a message, God is love. It's true. God is love. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that. But is that really the whole story of who God is? Have you ever heard someone say this, and sometimes it, it comes from even our own children, if you loved me, you would let me do fill in the blank. Right? Love does not always let. In fact, sometimes love prevents. Sometimes love disciplines. You see, often when people want to say God is love, they are really saying that God must let. He must let me do something. That's real love. If we say God is love, then what must this divine love look like? If we read in the Bible that God is love, and that's all we think God is, and we also read in the Bible all about love, and all about what the Bible says God is, then what does it look like? The Bible says that God is a spirit. How does a spirit love? The Bible says that God is holy. So how does the Holy Spirit love? The Bible says there is no one like God. So how does the only perfect Holy Spirit in the entire universe love? How can we possibly know the answer unless God tells us? We know that God presents himself in the Bible as love, but also as creator, as holy, as faithful, as sovereign. Listen to what the Westminster Confession says when it describes the Bible's teaching of God and of the Holy Trinity. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passion, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Most loving, most gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God hath all life, glory, 
goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he has made, not deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them to by to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever he pleases. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all of his counsels, in all of his works, and in all of his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. In the unity of the Godhead there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father and the Holy Ghost, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. This is the God of the Bible. He reveals himself to you and I. And the confession speaks of many things over than his or other than his love just like the scriptures speak of many things other than the love of God it tells us for instance that God requires holiness of all who would be in a loving relationship with God in Hebrews 12 14 it tells us without holiness no one will see God we can only truly understand the depth of the meaning of the statement God is love when we begin to understand something of the character of God and the righteousness and the perfection of God. It is only when we contemplate the greatness of God that we begin to realize that his love has a depth, a texture, a fullness, and a beauty, and that we are in our present state can only wonder at the greatness of who God is. The gospel is not simply that God is love. Nor is it that you are okay. Thirdly, the gospel is not the news that Jesus wants to be our friend. There are times that the gospel is presented as Jesus, he just wants to be your friend. He just wants to be your friend. He wants to be your example. Let's be clear. The gospel is not a matter of cultivating a friendship with Jesus. Or just following after his example. Every single one of us has real sin and real guilt and a real past to deal with. So what will our holy God do with us? If he wants us to really know him, how does he make that happen without sacrificing his own holiness. Does God look at our sin against him and say, oh, that's just no big deal? Is it looked at that he is just going to forgive and forget? You know, as we 
read through the Gospels, it's very interesting to look at the teachings of Jesus. Because above everything else that Jesus taught, he teaches that he came to earth specifically to die. This may seem unusual to us, but it was the center of his ministry. The focus was not on, te- on, on his teachings or being an example. He, that's not the focus of his teaching. The focus of his teaching is the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. Jesus clearly and pain, plainly taught that his choice to glorify the Father by his death on the cross was central to everything that he did. Therefore, it is no surprise that the cross is the central focus of all four Gospels. And so the question is, how could something so horrifying possibly be at the center of something that we call good news? Because the cross is God's way to bring us to himself, and without it, we have no hope. Jesus explains this before it even happens in Mark 8, 27 through 38. Jesus takes to, to strand, uh, talks about a strand of the Old Testament prophecy that has not been brought uh, together before, and he weaves all this together, and he presents himself as a son of man spoken of in Daniel 7 and as a suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah 53. And Jesus went up with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be Killed, And after three days, he will rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside. Oh, Peter. And rebukes him. But turning and seeing his disciples. Peter takes him aside. Rebukes him. And Jesus turns and sees his disciples. Right? He rebuked Peter. And said... Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I like to picture it. That's how Jesus said it. Like we read it and we're like, get behind me, Satan. No. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. Often, Jesus' death is presented to us as a sacrifice that involves his blood. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Jesus chooses to die at Passover to make it abundantly clear that he was dying as an atoning sacrifice for sin. So what does this have to do with you and I and our enslavement to sin? In order to find out, we must look at the language that's used throughout the scripture about the death of Christ. So when the Bible says that you and I are redeemed, it is saying that we've been bought, that we specifically have been purchase that we've been bought out of what out of slavery we are slaves just as God bought and brought the nation of Israel out of slavery to the Egyptians as Christians we've been bought and brought out of the slavery of sin the death of Christ as a price that must is the price that must be paid for our freedom The death of Christ is how God has redeemed us from our enslavement to sin. You see, the Bible uses this economic language. You've been bought to describe our purchase. The Bible uses relational language to describe the death of Christ. Through the death of Christ, God has reconciled us to himself. His rebellious creatures who were made in the image of him destroyed the relationship. And through Christ's death, fellowship with God is restored which is the root cause of our hostility, is sin. That, that, that sin that exists between us and God. And so we have economic language, we have relational language, we have legal language. It shows us that how his death deals with the reality of our guilt before God and punishment that we deserve. It uses terms like justification, which is the legal declaration of being not guilty to describe the events of Christ's death. It uses military language. We see the world portrayed as a spiritual battlefield. And we are told concerning Christ's death on the cross that he disarmed the powers and authorities. And we see him delivering people from demon possession. The work of Christ is described as redemption. A purchase that was made to obtain the liberty of a certain oppressed people secured by the blood of Jesus. It is described as reconciliation where all hostility between two parties is eventually resolved. It is described as propitiation which is an appeasing of God's just and holy wrath against people for their sin. The wrath of God is appeased so that he can deal justly with sinners in terms of his love rather than in terms of his wrath. This language that is used is not referring to something that is potential or optional. It is referring to what God actually accomplished. God actually accomplished what he said he would accomplish through the death of Jesus Christ. The benefit is not just made available. It is secured by the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection to life. There is no getting around the fact that the center of Christ's ministry was his death on the cross. And at the heart of that death was a certainty of God that he was effectively dealing with the claim both his love and his justice are taken care of. You see... Christ isn't just our friend. To call Christ just our friend, as his supreme title, is to give him very little praise. He is our friend, yes, but he is so much more. 
By his death on the cross, Christ has become the lamb that was slain, the redeemer, the one who has made peace between us and God. He has taken our guilt upon him. He has conquered our most deadly enemy and has appeased the well-deserved wrath of God. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain by your blood. You ransomed the people of God from every tribe. Every language and every people and nation. Revelation 5, 5 through 9. The gospel is not just that Jesus is your friend. It is so much more. The gospel is not the news that God has a wonderful plan or purpose for your life. Some people think, the good news of the Bible, God is remarkable, and he's remaking the world, and he's restoring peace in the world, and that we are all called to join him in that work, and that's the good news. There's a sense in which that's true, but it fails to mention several critical pieces. Certainly, the Bible does contain wonderful promises about God's plan for his world and his people. Even now, Christians are experiencing the renewal that comes from God. We are the object of God's work. We are born again by the Spirit of God. We live a new life, being worthy of the kingdom and shining like stars. We are even said to be co-laborers with God. But as we think about this narrative, there are some things that we need to make sure of that are included in the story, as is so often recounted. First, We don't do the gospel. The gospel is not about something you do. It is something we proclaim. The gospel is the news that we proclaim. Not about what we're doing, but it is about what God has done, is doing, and will do. At the same time, we're not called to sit back and enjoy the show in order for the gospel to be good news. And then we must be told how it is that we can get in on this good news. Any faithful presentation of the gospel does not leave us with an option of being passive. It's not a recounting of God's story of action and then leaving out how through the cross and the resurrection of Christ we can enter into that story. We can't be like, well, here's the gospel. Good luck. The sign Christ gave of the gospel, the signs he gave, are not passive signs. It's not like watching paint dry. He told his followers to get into the water of baptism. He told them to eat the bread and drink the wine of communion. He calls us to live new lives, to bear fruit in 
keeping of repentance and to acknowledge Jesus before men. In fact, we are commanded to obey everything that Jesus taught. The gospel of Jesus Christ demands your and I's response. There must be a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look at that this morning. The gospel and our response. We've seen what the gospel is not. But what is it? The gospel is the good news that the one and only God who is holy made us in his image to know him. But we sinned and we cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and fulfilled the law himself. And taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all who would ever turn and trust in him. Jesus rose from the grave, proving that God accepted his sacrificial death and that God's wrath was exhausted. Jesus then ascended to heaven and presented his completed work to his heavenly father. He now sits sits at the right hand of his father and sends out his spirit to call through to, to call us through this message to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for forgiveness. And if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again in a new life and eternal life with God. At the very center of the gospel stands this great exchange. It's an exchange between the righteousness of Christ and our sin. His substitutionary death in our place on the cross is the heart of the message of the gospel. It is absolutely meaningless to talk to anyone about accepting or receiving Jesus Christ as their Savior if they do not believe this message and rely completely on Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Listen to me Clearly, the gospel of Jesus Christ demands a radical response. It demands it. It is not something that that comes along and, oh, it just made my life better. It is a message of the best news in all of the world. And for those who know and realize their desperate state before a holy God, they Get it. You see, we don't need the benefits of the gospel. We need God. We need God Himself. And since we are all condemned sinners, we need His forgiveness above everything else. And when we present the gospel as something less than this radical response, then we're asking for false conversions and meaningless church membership. Both of them make evangelism in the world more difficult. What is the response that the gospel calls for? What should anyone do when they sense that they need and understand who God is and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? What should our response be? Are we to walk down an aisle? Do we fill out a card? Do we raise our hand during a prayer? Do we make an appointment with the preacher? Do we decide to be baptized and join the church? Those things may be involved. However, none of them have to be involved. According to the scripture, our response to the gospel is to repent and believe. It says repent and believe. 
repent of our sins and trust Christ alone. So, let's look at repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. The New Testament often will mention these together. When Paul met with the Ephesian church leaders, this is how he summarized his message. Testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of, of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 21. And when we have heard the truth about, about sin and about God's holiness, about his love and sending his son, Jesus Christ, and about Christ's death for our justification, we must repent. In Mark 1, 15, Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. What does it mean to repent? To repent simply means to turn from your sin. It is to recognize that you are a sinner and you renounce your sin. Along with repentance and belief, we must think that the gospel message is true. We must believe it's true. There's much more to this belief than than just kind of, oh, I believe it's true. For example, we can believe facts. We can say, I believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Or that the only letters that don't appear on the periodic table are J and Q. Or the first movie ever to be put out, or to put out a motion picture soundtrack with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Or we can say, I believe that German chocolate cake is named after an American baker by the name of Samuel German and has no affiliation with the country of Germany. You see, you can believe these things. And they are true. And they're just facts. That's not the kind of belief that the gospel requires. You see, belief in the gospel is not just this intellectual scent. It is believing in and fully relying on the good news of salvation. We must assent that we are absolutely unable to satisfy the demands of God. And no matter how hard we try, and no matter how morally we live, we will never satisfy his demands. And nowhere do we find that we must trust a little in ourselves and a little in God. That we must rely a little on ourselves and a little on God. No, we must rely on God fully. And we must trust in Christ alone for salvation. You see, true belief demands not only faith but repentance. It demands that our lives actually do change. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. We can't choose to believe and then later when we decide to get serious and holy, we add in some repentance. Repentance is what we do when we begin to think rightly about who God is and rightly about ourselves. And belief with this kind of change is only, uh, without this kind of change, is only a counterfeit belief. J.C. Ryle said this, There is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have, and think they have enough. A cheap Christianity, which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. The repentance that Jesus calls for is repentance that is connected with believing in the news. If it is a new message, it is no surprise that you change your mind when you hear it. The Greek word for repent, melatonoia, literally means to change your mind. And because your mind changes, so does your life. You see, real Christianity is never an addition to our cultivation of something that's always been in our life. Real Christianity is a radical about face. It's a turning around. It's all Christians 
make this about faith in their life as they come to rely on Christ's finished work on the cross. To say that you trust without living as though you actually do trust is not biblical trust. You see, we change the way we act, but only because we change what we believe. We now believe that Jesus died for us, and we trust that Jesus died for us, and therefore it produces obedience in us, and this changes us to work for the Spirit of God. We will look more at that next week. So in conclusion this morning, we must understand that, yes, Christianity has a specific cognitive content, it's not just religious enthusiasm. Nor is it, oh, I got some sort of s- spiritual intuition. It is the news that has something to say about who we are and about who God is and about Jesus. This news is either right or it's wrong. Either we really are sinful, as the Bible claims, or we're not. Either God is or is not. Either he He is or is not who the Bible says he is. Either Jesus did die on the cross or he didn't die on the cross. Listen, church, do you really know what it is that you claim to believe? Do you really know? This is how B.B. Warfield described it. A dozen ignorant peasants proclaiming a crucified Jew as a founder of a new faith, bearing as a symbol of their worship an instrument which was the sign of ignominy, slavery, and crime. Preaching that must have seemed an absurd doctrine of humility, patient suffering, and love to enemies. Graces undreamed of before. Demanding what must have seemed an absurd worship for one who had died like a malefactor and a slave. And making what must have seemed an absurd promise of everlasting life through one who had himself died. And that between two thieves. Yes, the message is magnificent. It's true. It really did happen the way the Bible says it did. All other messages are false. The message that says, I'm okay, it's false. The message that says, you're okay, it's false. The message that says, whatever you think of love, that's what God is, false. The message that says, oh, well, Jesus is your friend, false. The message that says, just live right and you will be okay, false. They are not the good news. They're false gospels. At best, they are dangerous. However, the good news of Christ dying on a cross as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all of those who would ever turn and trust in Him, this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is not make-believe. It is not a fairy tale. It is real. The last time I checked, we are part of the ultimate statistic. Ten out of ten people die. Have you heard the gospel and believed it with your whole life? Are you playing religion? Do you attend church on occasion? Maybe when you have some guilt or maybe when you're curious, but your ultimate satisfaction is found in your own self first. Listen to really hear the gospel is to be shaken to your core to really hear the gospel is to change have you heard the gospel not some slick words about your goodness or about god's acceptance of you or about an inoffensive jesus who wants to be your buddy or even a convicting word about 
how to get rid of sin, but have you heard the gospel? Have you heard the great message about how great our God is? It is the best news you ever will hear. Old sins forgiven. New life started. Personal relationship with God, the God of this universe, the creator now and forever. What better news could there possibly be, church? There isn't any. And finally, does it overthrow, overflow into who you are? You see, when a church is healthy, its members know and cherish the gospel above everything else. They will increasingly want to share the gospel with the world. George Truett once said this, The supreme indictment that you can bring against a church is that a church lacks in passion and compassion for human souls. A church is nothing better than an ethical club if its sympathies for lost souls do not overflow and if it does not go out to seek to point lost souls to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Listen, church. Evangelism is not something that you do by inviting someone to church. Do you get it? You have the best news in the whole world. The tremendous news of salvation in Christ. Don't you Dare barter for some cheap, watered-down, half-truth version of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is only one truth. He came to save sinners. Are you sharing that? Let's go. And let's share the gospel. With a lost and dying world that desperately needs to hear it. A healthy church knows the gospel and shares it. So I would ask, are we a healthy church? Here in a moment, we're going to sing and pray. We're going to pray and sing, actually. And maybe... The Lord's spoken to you in some way, shape, or form through his word today. Maybe you've not been sharing the gospel. Maybe you've never truly believed the gospel. I don't know. I don't pretend to know how God speaks to people that he's gathered here. I just know he does it. And I want to give you the chance to respond. And so if you feel like you need to respond this morning, I'll be standing down front. Love to shake your hand, pray with you if that's what you need. You can pray in your pew. You can come up to me after church and say, Pastor, I need to talk with you. Whatever it is you need, I'm here for you. But let's close with prayer, and then we'll sing a song. Father, thank you.